You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air and get a limited release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN Airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I find extraordinary and inspirational. This week, I'm talking with Beverly Kim. Hi, Beverly. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you. Last time I got to see you, we were in Chicago at Wherewithal, uh, one of your restaurants. I'm a huge fan of all the work that you do in hospitality, not just your restaurants like Parachute and Wherewithal, but also your work with the abundance setting. And I can't wait to talk to you about it today. So when I was learning a little bit about your background, I was fascinated to learn that you had your heart set on being part of the restaurant world when you were in high school. Can you tell me, like, how did you know? Like, why was the restaurant industry so important to you as a kid? Actually, so I didn't really grow up in a restaurant family. Um, I have a traditional Korean immigrant home in terms of my mom was the homemaker. Uh, She was the one at home cooking all the time. My dad was a traditional Korean immigrant male, uh, didn't really cook at all. So for me, the restaurant industry really didn't come into my mindset until my oldest sister, who is nine years older than me, she was already like 24, I think at the time. And and she had some friends who had worked in some restaurants and in Four Seasons Hotel and things like that. And she said, why don't you think about being a a chef? Because uh, we had this conversation about what I should do for college. And I was in my junior year of high school. And she said, I think you'd be a great chef. Um, You just are always in the kitchen and you just love being in the kitchen helping mom and, and serving people. So I had no idea what that meant. So at the time, I uh, went to Barnes and Nobles because that was the only kind of way that information was getting <laughs> I books. Love that. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was a book, and it was written in 1990. It was like the Who's Who uh, of the James Beard. So I bought that book, and sure enough, there was like different cities and different states, and. James Beard award-winning chefs and had this crazy idea of writing them some letters. And I had my sister help me craft a professional letter asking if they would spend some time, you know, for me to interview them or ask them a few questions about this career choice. It just seems to me like it's pretty nervy. Did it feel nervy or just like you were inspired? These people should talk to you. 
Yeah, I, I feel like it was very nervy. <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, it's like shooting for the moon. Like who, who would have thought anybody would? But my sister was um, already kind of understanding the the term shadowing and finding a mentor and, and coaching, and that was something that she had learned in college. You know, in the journalism world. And sure enough, a few people had reached out. And um, I was able to shadow uh, Roland Leccioni at La Francais, Yves Rubeau at Shaw's Crab House for a day. And then um, Sarah Stegner, who is the executive dining room chef at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And she actually called me and she said, you know, um, I wrote to Ferdinand Gutierrez at the time. And she said, he's no longer here. But if he was here, he would have responded to your letter. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. It's so sweet. And this is like back in the day where it was all based on letters yeah. <laughs> and, and, and phone calls, right? Like just letters and phone calls. There was no email. There's no uh, Instagram. So uh, everything took time. So I was curious because in reading a little bit about you, your parents come through as such strong characters and quite different from one another. I'm curious about your father's influence and impact on the choices you made and, you know, when you really turned him around and got his support. He's, again, a very traditional male figure. Um, He was the only male in his generation. His father actually passed away or disappeared during the Korean War when he was three. And his father was the first of his generation. So in in Korean tradition, it was like the firstborn son kind of carries the name and... I think with him, my dad, he held that responsibility of carrying on the name and hence he had four beautiful daughters. <laughs> I was the last of the four daughters. I, I, I've been very introspective of how that is, has affected me because I remember I was actually the, the the baby of the family and the last one who they were really hoping would be David. <laughs> that was going to be my name, David. Can they already picked out my name? Wow. My name Beverly was a last minute thing. Um, funny enough, my dad is an OB-GYNE oh. and my mom's doctor was actually out of town and very special that he actually delivered me. No. <laughs> That's kind of a rare thing. <laughs> oh my <Yes>. goodness. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think there was this like disappointment for for quite some time, uh, sadness around me being a, a daughter, honestly. And you know, when I was growing up, I would hear these kind of like murmurs of like if life would be so much better if we had a son in the family to carry the name and things like that. I really didn't kind of understand it. I think that has always had a chip on my shoulder about that. And I was going to uh, college. You know, my dad had gone through a huge financial crisis, even as a doctor, because he's a private practitioner with just, you know, insurance turnover and things like that. And uh, as an immigrant and then going through um, three college tuitions, you know, two weddings (laughs) (laughs) and he got to me and he was just like, and I remember I got to Northwestern and I remember that there was this uh, moment they're like, well, if you were a son, I would send you. But oh. but anyway, I, I was also contemplating Kendall College or, you know, culinary school and had, had having had worked a summer at the Ritz-Carlton, that was also an option. And in my mind, I was like, okay, well, then let me show you. I'm going to go be independent. I'm going to go to culinary school for two years. I'm going to get my own job. I'm going to, you know, get going, you know what I mean? Be independent. And so it sort of spurred me to be more motivated to succeed because there was a sense of like, oh, women 
are a financial burden and don't contribute. And so that's kind of like something that has stuck with me, even when I went to culinary school. And of course, you're like, this man, Dr. Kim, sounds really just like very negative. But I mean, in context, he comes from a very traditional culture and this was a very patriarchal culture. So coming to America, it sounds very odd, but he would say, you know, things like, well, if you go, at least if you go to culinary school, you can make a good wife, oh, you wow. know, something like that. <laughs> but he was like, if you were my son, I'd kick your ass, you know? And he, and it's like half joking, but like half truth for, for him. So I think my whole career, I was like, I really just want to show my dad that I can be somebody with, you know, I can be independent and it, it's one of those jobs that you can always have, find a job, you know what I mean? And right, I, that's true. You will never be unemployed. You would never be unemployed. I was always employed, working like always. And um, when I finally became an executive chef at opera, one day he came in for dinner and he said, I mean, it sounds so kind of grandioso, but you're just like, well, maybe you can be one of the best chefs in the world, you know, after he ate this (laughs) food, you know, that I had. And he was suggesting maybe I can be one of the top chefs. How did that that make you feel? Like vindicated or kind of angry? Like, of course I can. What do you mean? You should have believed in me. I actually was like, excuse me, everybody, I need to get off the line. And I went to the office and I locked the doors and I kind of bawled for like a good five minutes. And I don't know if the word is vindicated, but I did feel like a sense of something connecting in me. Like, oh, I just needed that affirmation for my own parent that I can be somebody, you know, it was healing. It was very healing to hear from him. Um, those words, because I didn't think that, um, that's what he thought of me in this industry. You know, like I could be a top chef and take me seriously, you know, and so that was that was a beautiful moment I will always remember. Let's go back. I mean, when you sent out your letter asking to shadow, looking for a mentor, you sent out mostly letters to men because the chefs back in the day, the big and important chefs, were all men. And you hit upon Sarah Stegner, who became an amazing mentor. What was it like just seeing that? And how would you describe the, the change from... If, there, if you see a change, you know, from that moment in culinary to today. When I was younger and just realizing that, ironically, you know, here was my family saying, okay, well, at least you could be a good wife and go to culinary school, right? Then going into this professional world and then seeing very few women and it's mostly men and they were almost kind of like trying to like forewarn me, this is going to be a very hard career. This is not cooking at home, you know. <laughs> this is not like put your music on and take your time, you know, like have fun kind of thing. And I was very well made aware of that and just started to pick up. I understood that this was a very demanding career. It's hard for both men and women to actually succeed in this industry, but it just makes it even harder for women to succeed because it's so demanding in terms of time, in terms of culture, not not a very um, hospitable career for family, even though it's a hospitable, it's a hospitality career, is very ironic. And that, that irony really is, is confusing, but um, I, I was actually intrigued by it. That's interesting that you were intrigued as opposed to turned off, right? Because it could be super hard. I don't want to do it. Obviously, there aren't a lot of women here. But what was intriguing about it? Well, I mean, I did even actually quit, honestly, um, culinary school. And then I went back. I I took some time off because I was like, I don't know if this is for me. I mean, 
I feel like all the talk feels like I'm in a locker room. I feel like uh, maybe I need to go back to academia, you know, where I feel like my value is stronger, you know. Like, and I love history, and I tried anthropology writing, and I was like, there's something about working in a kitchen again that I really miss. It's just... It's just a passion, you know. Um, I didn't realize that this industry was like, you know, full of misfits. It's just one of those industry that like is one of those like takes everybody, you know what I mean? Yes. And, <laughs> and and so and and you know, coming from a education like background, and it was hard for me to to process that. But then I slowly understood like that's the beauty of the industry. Yes, it's it's diversity, complexity, and passion, all of those things. One of your early jobs was working for Charlie Trotter. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? If you were, in, like, in Chicago, he was one of the few groundbreaking chefs, I would say. Really put Chicago on the map. And um, how I came across him and wanting to work for him was, I think, just... I, I didn't realize that at the time there was uh, so many like French chefs and so many French ins- inspired cooking. Uh, when I uh, got exposed to his style of cooking and his cookbooks and things like that, and I went to a, a demo, first time I seen kimchi on a dish or like like veg- vegetal components like in a dessert, and it was kind of the first chef that I. I felt like I could relate to his food. You know, there was a lot of Asian inspiration. I was trying to find. And this was throughout my whole journey. I was trying to find myself to work for somebody that I could connect with, like with the food and the story and my story. And I I feel like the style of like a four star restaurant, you know, there's like 12 course tasting menu. And it was it seemed like uh, something that I felt like I, I wanted to do. I want to be a part of that. Right. And so all I can say is it was a. It, uh, a, a transformative experience for my life. And I, I, I learned a lot of what I loved about the culinary industry. And I learned a lot about what I didn't like about the culinary industry. Right. Because at, at some point you brought a suit against Charlie Trotter, right? Yeah. And that was like, you know, in realizing, Hey, why are we signing in at two o'clock when we really come in at 11? I just didn't understand and when I wrapped my head around that, that that was some kind of loophole around just paying us the proper amount of hours, I, I just, I didn't feel like that was ex- acceptable to me because he was successful enough to pay those proper hours, I feel. I mean, I know the margins are really, really small and I'm an owner myself, so it's really tight. But there is a level of, fairness that's really important in any industry how hard how hard was it to bring that lawsuit like charlie trotter back in the day you know was a a mega star and you ended up taking a lot of flack for bringing to the world's attention this pay disparity that you you were giving your labor for free and that was sort of the expectation of the people at Charlie Trotter and perhaps at other fine dining restaurants, too, who are like, right, we want to come in early. We don't care if we're paid because this is we're being trained by the best. And so like that's the price we pay. It's sort of like our tuition. And then we get paid 
on the books for the rest. What was that like for you? Because I, I haven't seen that reported and I just, I can't imagine being inside your brain during that time. You know, like, I think that, that there's an adult part of you that's like, okay, you got to be careful. You don't want to, you know, I always tell people don't burn your bridges. And that was a big bur- bridge to burn. I had many nightmares about it, to be honest, afterwards, like what would happen if I bump into him and of all these things, so many nightmares about it. So it, it took a lot of courage, I feel like, and strength for myself. Like for me, like I said, I was on my own. My parents didn't really support me at a certain time. Like I was financially on my own, paying my own apartment, paying for my food, everything. And I was working typical days, 11 to 2, right? Or on the weekends, it could be till 3. And going into debt, you know, it's just like I couldn't piece how that was fair. And the people that succeeded there or did well, their parents bought them, they paid for their apartments. You know, they lived really close to Lincoln Park. It's very hard to find parking there. So I, I uh, lived farther. And the economics of actually being a worker and going to work in under those circumstances. But for me and my lifestyle, it was very difficult to do. Like, I, like I'm, I'm an immigrant. Like, so my parents didn't really understand all of this stuff. They're like, why aren't you getting paid for this? You know, or why, why aren't you, you know, my, my own family couldn't understand why I wasn't signing in later. Right. Um, when you, and you won the lawsuit, you know, which, which is to say what they were doing was legally improper. But there was a lot of blowback and people you know, criticizing you and saying, well, she's just not up to it. I'm wondering, did you pay attention to that? Did that make you angry? I mean, did that sort of, was that the foundation of some of the work you've done since then? Hmm. Well, it, it actually didn't really get a lot of attention, like, because I wasn't really known, well known. I was just a cook, you know, line cook, sous chef, became a sous chef, became executive chef. But then once I got onto Top Chef, and then it kind of like came to um, a head with the uh, coming of his closing, I felt like there was this almost kind of like moment of like, okay, we can really make some clicks happen, here, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> you know, and that's why I felt, I, I felt a little like, Definitely a combination of feelings like her doing something like that. You're going to get people who disagree or people who don't necessarily support it or whatever have you. And then there's a lot of people who silently do support it, but they're too afraid to speak out. It's very complex. Honestly, I think that moment, this was before the Me Too movement. This was before... COVID and all all these movements. So I think at the time it was almost like not popular, you know, to yeah. like be like, yes, Beverly was like right or anything. And I don't need to be right. I just just need to like say it for what it is. It's it's an industry problem that we need to address. Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air and get a limited-release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited-edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. 
You can even get your company on the HRN airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So you um, and your husband, Johnny Clark, opened Parachute. Can you tell me a little bit about the journey to open Parachute? What was that like? Because you, you know, you had a, a tight budget and there was almost a moment when Parachute didn't happen. So can you just tell us about the birth of Parachute? So yeah, the birth of Parachute was um, our last chance. I honestly think to stay in this career. Um, we had a day one at the time. He was three years old. Um, I had just, you know, got off of Top Chef. And then a year later, we tried to partner with someone, but it wasn't a good fit. We realized, you know, either we do something on our own with our own name, vision, everything. I feel like for in order for it to really work or um, just try a different kind of career that will be more stable for our family. It was a high risk, high reward thing. Um, we had a very small budget. This is where my dad comes in, put a little seed money in. And it was really hard for us to ask because we had spent maybe a year and a half talking with investors. The investors really definitely wanted a lot of equity for very little mon- amount of money. They wanted a lot of say in the way the food was. And um, I think that we came to this decision. We really wanted to just open our own restaurant. And so we came up with a uh, small seed money. And with that, you know, I couldn't let anybody down because this is retirement for my parents, yeah. you know, <laughs> and oh. their home that they worked really hard for signed off as, as an equity, but it was a huge risk. But uh, we minimized a lot of that by trying to open as small as possible. So we opened for $200,000, which is like incredibly low to open, a, you know, a 50 seat restaurant. Tell me about the neighborhood, because from what I understand, you're in Avondale, you're pioneers. Like it was not a place that people would expect to find what became like a Michelin star restaurant. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really kind of accidental and coincidental um it's like north of logan square which is a a very foodie area foodie neighborhood and at the time john was working actually at lula uh, and i was working at kendall just to make ends meet as we were planning opening our restaurant and he just was riding his bike everywhere trying to find places and came across a place that looked like um it could possibly be going out of business and we were trying to get in touch with the owner and it was really hard to find any information of who the owner was and i randomly thought one day to just go buy it and this is after like maybe giving up on that space and then the lights were on and so i like kind of turned around like luckily like met the owner who was saying that he wanted to sell his business so <laughs> that it was is just, amazing like, the right timing. it was like it was a really like serendipitous and um that uh Avondale it just has a really openness to it in terms of like because a lot of neighborhoods has like oh yeah that's this neighborhood or that's this neighborhood this is posh this is not we didn't want to have like any kind of pre-existing kind of like stereotypes of what we were going to do and I think that's good for us because parachute at the time it needed to be as free and like the vision needed to be very clear as possible so what um what is how did you choose the name parachute and then what was the food and has it evolved parachute is the name that we've been holding on to for a long time like if we open a restaurant we call it parachute and when i was like 
midlife cook crisis. I had spent like six or seven years working under other chefs and, and only working in Chicago. And I was driving to Prairie Grass, right? And um, it was like left lane January and my car spun like crazy in the left lane. And I thought I was going to get hit. And I almost imagined all these cars. I could see them actually kind of like the matrix. They were all swerving around me and it was in slow motion. And it was like not getting hit. It was like this really kind of like spiritual moment where like I thought I was ready to die and then I didn't (laughs) and then I was like I survived that and I I just like like drove my my car that was got got hit by the median and I worked the 400 covers at night on Saturday and I just went home and I just was like what am I doing with my life and and I talked to chef uh Sarah and I was like would you be okay if I took a I needed to, to see something different. I've been in Chicago for all these years and I want to go to Korea. I need to, to switch something up for myself, um, spiritually for like, and food wise, you know, like I, I'm searching for something. So I went to Korea for about two months. I took some time off and I shadowed at Chilla Hotel, a few places. I took some Korean classes and I was just kind of living my young woman's life in Korea and trying to understand my like homeland. As a Korean American, like being born here and once in a while uh, when I was growing up, you'd, you'd have like kids saying like, go back to your country, you know, I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, this is my country. I'm American. And um, so I was always aware that even though I'm American, I'm always going to be considered diff- like other, you know, but when I went to Korea, it was interesting because when I was working in Korean kitchens, I was considered another, you know, because I, you know, obviously my Korean was not 100% and I felt like, like an immigrant, you know, like I had that feeling of not being fully like Korean and they were talking about me, talking around me. And one guy said, uh, I was a Nakasan and, and um, I was like, what is Nakasan? So in his mind, he thought I was kind of parachuting out uh, and going, and it's a, it's a sort of a, a derogatory term in Korean that's like a parachute coming out and you go to the top and you skip all the steps, you know, and they consider me American. They don't consider me like Korean. And it was this feeling of being sort of neither here nor there. And for a moment, I remember crying about it because someone had yelled at me for talking so loud. I was like, oh, I think that I'm just talking in my normal voice. you know. <laughs> but, you You're know, talking Korean, in your American voice. Where I was talking in my American voice and I was like, wow, I am too loud, I guess. I told this story to my husband, Johnny. Um, he also worked in Korea and he just, he thought it was a beautiful story because I don't have to be boxed into either idea or let what people say about me bring me down. I can, on the other hand, turn it into something positive because being able to bridge cultures, being able to see outside the box, it's acceptable by bringing a twist on something, you know? So like, I, I see it as an advantage. And then the English like flip side of the word nakasan, the Korean word, it feels to me like you know, what color is your parachute? Like it's an open mind, openness and a safety thing. It's a beautiful, like evocative word. Yeah, that is a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, and tell us a, a bit about the, the food at Parachute. So when we first opened Parachute, it was just like an explosion of ideas. It had um, the Korean communal uh, shared plates thing. We had spice like Moroccan spices, Indian spices, <laughs> and Vietnamese. I mean, as a Korean American, I just, what we were putting flavors that we enjoyed, 
tied in with a Korean thread. We opened our second restaurant um, five years later, Wherewithal, and that is like a very creative place. Like the menu changes every week. Now, now in our eighth year at Parachute, it's like okay, well, we kind of want to constantly like reinvent not reinvent ourselves, but I, I'm, I'm very inspired by Madonna. She constantly <laughs> is reinventing herself. She is an icon in my yeah. eyes. Like ever since I was five, I adored her. But if you look at her, she's always Madonna. But she's always constantly changing, and she keeps it interesting. I think that's a really a uh, key thing that me and my husband believe in. Like you know, because if you're just stagnant, uh, you're not growing. So when uh, we reopen, we are leaning in a little bit more to the Korean side, like more focused in on the Korean Korean classics, but like giving it a modern touch. We, I mean, we've met a few times, but one of the most powerful times is over uh, the abundance setting because you are such an amazing advocate for the women of the industry, especially as it pertains to mothers and how we actually need to change and evolve the industry to make it a place where women who have children can actually work. You now have two. When you started Parachute, I guess you said you had one. I'd love to hear more about who your partners are at the abundance setting and how that came in into being like where did where did you first spark that idea i think that idea um was sparked actually it was during the me too movement a bunch of women uh, chefs got together actually at carrie naha bidian's place it was like this moment where she's like i am sad that things haven't changed very much for women i had at that point you know um, experienced how hard it was to raise a child and stay in this industry um, well, when I met John, uh, it was also a passionate thing. We fell in love and we got married within a year and had a baby within a year. So it was, it was kind of like we didn't think too hard about it. We didn't make plans about it, uh, which is kind of great because <laughs> like we would have talked ourselves out of it completely because, uh, when we, you, when you run into like, Oh, how, how are you going to cover your healthcare costs for this? How are you going to cover your your parental leave how are you going to cover the cost of childcare? like oh we didn't think about that you know and going through so many hurdles and so many sacrifices and i realized that you know this is a thing that we just don't really take the time to look at and explore if we did i feel like we would as a community support more working women to stay in this industry. Because I, what I've seen in this industry is that a lot of women do great as long as they're single and young. And then as soon as they get married and they want to have kids and it's just like they drop out. You know, we have unique challenges in our industry where we work more nighttime hours, we work weekend hours. Even at the top advancement, like being an executive chef or CDC, it's nowhere near like what other executives make in other industries. I feel like that one of the things that's, great about the abundance setting is it's a forum for people to have discussion, but you also have focused on what some of the solutions are. Do you want to share what you think some of the solutions are? First of all, it's never going to be easy and we're not going to change any policies overnight, but I think the the general cultural changes that we need to make is so many things um, from maybe just even offering a parental leave program offer it, say it, like put it on there. I mean, it just shows that there's some consideration and thought behind it. So um, a few of us restaurateurs have put a parental leave program. Now, childcare itself is a whole nother, I know um, like 
Camilla Marcus tried um, doing childcare stipends. Really cool uh, idea and, and needs to keep rolling with that. Um, but I think it's first understanding what everyone's childcare situation is. It's very diverse in our industry. One of our biggest goals is to do a, like a thorough research on understanding what the needs, uh, the childcare needs are of our industry. That will be next year. The other things that, you know, concrete things is just a mentorship. Had I not had Chef Sarah in my corner of the boxing match, you yeah. know, like constantly, you know, when I feel like, oh my gosh, I want to give up. Like she was always encouraging me, telling me like, oh, that's a great idea or that's a not so great idea or this is how you should, this is how she should approach this, you know, just from her own professional standpoint. I had to cultivate that relationship with her and it's kind of like, making that accessible, but also cultivating, how do you, how do you cultivate a relationship for a mentor? And, you know, like it goes both ways. I mean, what is, what's, what's the answer to that? Cause I, I find people are extremely interested in that notion. There's a gap of mentoring in this industry and in many industries. Like, do you have advice for people who want mentors, but it's just not obvious who that person's going to be, or if it is obvious, they're not sure how to approach that person. So I worked for Chef Sarah Stegner eventually. I had to be very persistent in getting my first job with her. I had to be a performer and I was connecting with her and I was giving back to her in some ways too, you know? And I think that's something that people don't understand is like, you get what you give in. And I think there was a time I was very scared of Chef Sarah actually. (laughs) She's a really tough woman (laughs) on the line. She is really tough and... But I always found her fair. I always found her willing to give me advice. I always felt she was willing to give me clear advice. Um, There was no mind games. And that was important to me. Like I felt if I gave something to her, it would come back to me. And she nurtured that relationship. I think not every chef employer can be your mentor. But I've been recently thinking about that is that is probably one of the biggest gifts you can give to your staff is being like a mentor. But again, it has to come from the employee wanting it and initiating. I just remember Chef Sarah, you know, she'd always be like, you know, you're such a positive person. Like she would tell me when I'm doing things great. And she would be also honest with me when I was not doing so great, you know, like, oh, your dice is horrible. Take, we're going to throw that away. Or she'd take me aside, like the whole restaurant went down because of your station and you need to come back tomorrow and rethink how you're going to be set up tomorrow. And I was accepted to the criticism. Like I wasn't like hurt from it. I just was determined to take that criticism and be constructive with it. There's a distinction, I think, between, you know, having a good relationship with your boss because bosses should give the feedback that you're describing, right? Like fix your dice, do do this. But I think that there is a difference between just having a boss you have a good relationship with and having a mentor. A, a mentor is at a different level and probably, you know, more in a 360 way, whereas a boss comments on your work and a mentor is supportive of the work and your future. Right. And I think that's developing a relationship with that person inside and outside. Again, like it's so hard for managers to be everything. You have your business hat on when you're a manager and then a mentorship hat is giving outside advice that can get blurry when you're working for somebody. So, and maybe that's why uh, me and Chef Sarah worked 
well is because initially it started as an outside mentorship. But I ultimately, I'm putting in the work myself in my own professional career. She's giving me advice and giving me support in coaching. I think there's only so much a mentor can do. I think it's like almost 80% the mentee needs to also take that advice and, and, and really go with it. And not, every, not everyone's mentor's advice is going to be good for you. Right. I think that's that's also really important to keep in mind, right? Because not every boss is created equal. Not every mentor is, is created equal. Do you feel like we're, as an industry, making progress on paternal leave, health care, you know, the working mothers? Like, like, if you had one thing to to say to everyone who is in control of, you know, a team, what would it be? Something that, you, in your view would help make the industry more sustainable? Yeah, it's a good question. I think culturally, there's definitely more uh, conversations around work-life balance. Even for myself, I'm like, I would love to say hi to another guest, and but it's 10 o'clock and I make that decision to go home. So I just have to, even for myself as an owner, like make some boundaries um, in order for it to be healthy and sustainable for me. And I think maybe that's just like where it starts. It starts from thought leadership. How do we even make our own boundaries when it comes to like families and things like that? And how does that feel like? And and I think like people are interested in, in raising the living wage and raising the quality of life of this industry balanced with the quality of this industry. Like the food culture and the, the beverage culture is actually, um, it's a manifestation of what's happening politically and culturally. It's important to have, right, right, a Michelin star is very important for business, but then you read about people in Europe killing themselves over losing a star. And you ha- we have to like understand like the mental health of this industry, the bigger picture. Um, I, I feel very hopeful because I feel like a lot more people are talking about this and c- considering it. And, and you've, you've also been a, a big part of that. I wanted to ask about the pop-up that you're doing at Wherewithal, because I met some incredible people when I was at Wherewithal who were participating in the like a pop-up in the back dining room. That was such a fun event. Um, we had um, Tigist, for example, who is an Ethiopian immigrant here. She's had a restaurant for 20 years and using her platform now to help women in Tigray who are victims of violence, oftentimes sexual violence because of war. And, you know, to the Soul and Smoke folks, Heather, and she, like her manager, and like they share a babysitter. So figuring out ways to like um, take care of our children and be entrepreneurs to, um, you know, there was uh, the Rick Bayless, uh, Lainey came with uh, the pastry chef, Jen Melendrez, who's single mom and Chef Sarah was there, Carrie Nahabidian. Carrie doesn't have children, but she's had many women work for her who left because they couldn't handle being a, a sous chef or a chef de cuisine and being a mom and like lost really good talent. And so she's really interested in how to figure this out. You also had um, someone from the Ukraine in the back room selling jewelry to support yeah, Marina. Yeah, Marina. She's amazing. So also, like, uh, we've, we've been doing pop-ups for, for Ukraine, and my husband is um, part Ukrainian and has been in touch with um, 
Marina, who's a refugee from Ukraine. And every time I talk to her, I realize that our problems are always so much smaller. <laughs> I don't know, like between, it's like, okay, there's a crisis, like a cooler's breaking down, but nothing can compare to like the lives lost in a war, constantly every day, not having electricity or food or access to things like that, what I'm hearing from Marina. And she um, has come here with her husband as refugees, but she actually ran a chef submit in Ukraine. So I was so happy that we have connected because at least through our little mini Ukrainian pop-ups and she's helping us with our social media, it connects her to some normalcy of what she used to do in Ukraine. Cause she had a, she was telling me she had a great life before the war started, you know, and um, now it's like, they're just living day to day, you know, just kind of trying to figure things out, living in a new country and city and don't have the freedoms that you had before and, feeling very insecure about her own family and being separated. So I feel like the human spirit is so phenomenal because we go through so many things that uh, we shouldn't, but there's always like um, a bright end to that. I was brought up this way to think that your pain is like, um, there's some purpose to it because you can use that pain to help others. And I've always felt like that was sort of one of my purposes. That's such a beautiful way to end the that part of the podcast. Each episode, I ask my guest if there's someone they want to give a shout out to a woman who deserves to be better known. And I wonder if there's someone you'd like to shout out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I immediately talked about uh, Chef Sarah Stegner. So funny. She was 1997 James Beard award-winning chef. Like one of the few chefs at the time in Chicago. Like I feel like people really should know her story and her history. I think she has done amazing work like behind the scenes with the Green City Market and bringing chefs together to support sustainability and environment and for supporting local farmers. But like she's been always like a huge advocate and supporter for me. And I really appreciate her and her work. And she works really hard at her own restaurant. And um, I think she's been, as a founding member of the uh, Abundance Setting, just always believed in this idea um, to help working moms. She's a working mom herself. And I'm so grateful to have someone I can talk to professionally, personally, because that's very hard to find. Well, thank you so much, um, Beverly, for coming on to Speaking Broadly. I loved uh, speaking with you and hearing a little bit more. For those of you who are listening, I'll be back with more inspiring women the next time we all gather. Have a great week. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.